Book Two, Chapter Seventeen of Robert Elsmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Seventeen. Mewmore Rectory during the next forty-eight hours was the scene of much that might have been of interest to a psychologist gifted with the power of divining his neighbours. In the first place, Catherine's terrors were all alive again. Robert had never seen her so moved since those days of storm and stress before their engagement. "'I cannot bear it,' she said to Robert at night in their room. "'I cannot bear it. I hear it always in my ears. What hast thou done with thy sister?' "'Oh, Robert, don't mind, dear, though he is your friend. My father would have shrunk from him with horror. An alien from the household of faith, an enemy to the cross of Christ.' She flung out the words with low, intense emphasis and frowning brow, standing rigid by the window, her hands locked behind her. Robert stood by her, much perplexed, feeling himself a good deal of a culprit, but inwardly conscious that he knew a great deal more about Langham than she did. "'My dear wifey,' he said to her, "'I am certain Langham has no intention of marrying.' "'Then more shame for him,' cried Catherine, flushing. They could not have looked more conscious, Robert, when I found them together, if you had just proposed. "'What, in five days?' said Robert, more than half inclined to banter his wife. Then he fell into meditation, as Catherine made no answer. "'I believe with men of that sort,' he said at last, "'relations to women are never more than half real, always more or less literature, acting. Langham is tasting an experience to be bottled up for future use.' It need hardly be said, however, that Catherine got small consolation out of this point of view. It seemed to her Robert did not take the matter quite rightly. "'After all, darling,' he said at last, kissing her, "'you can act dragon splendidly. You have already. So can I. And you really cannot make me believe in anything very tragic in a week.' But Catherine was conscious that she had already played the dragon hard to very little purpose. In the forty hours that intervened between the scene in the garden and the squire's dinner-party, Robert was always wanting to carry off Langham. Catherine was always asking Rose's help in some household business or other. In vain. Langham said to himself calmly, this time, that Ellesmere and his wife were making a foolish mistake in supposing that his friendship with Miss Laban was anything to be alarmed about, that they would soon be amply convinced of it themselves, and meanwhile he should take his own way. And as for Rose... They had no sooner turned back all three from the house to the garden than she had divined everything in Catherine's mind, and set herself against her sister with a willful force in which many a past irritation found expression. How Catherine hated the music of that week! It seemed to her that she never opened the drawing-room door, but she saw Langham at the piano, his head with its crown of glossy, curling black hair, and his eyes lit with unwanted gleams of laughter and sympathy, turned towards Rose, who was either chatting wildly to him, mimicking the airs of some professional, or taking off the ways of some famous teacher, or else, which was worse, playing with all her soul, flooding the house with sound, now as soft and delicate as first love, now as full and grand as storm-waves on an angry coast. And the sister, going with compressed lip to her work-table, would recognise sorely that never had the girl looked so handsome, and never had the lightnings of a wayward genius played so finely about her. As to Langham, it may well be believed that after the scene in the garden, he had rated, satirised, examined himself in the most approved, introspective style. 
One half of him declared that scene to have been the heights of melodramatic absurdity. The other thought of it with a thrill of tender gratitude towards the young, pitiful creature who had evoked it. After all, why, because he was alone in the world and must remain so, should he feel bound to refuse this one gift of the gods, the delicate, passing gift of a girl's, a child's friendship? As for her, the man's very real, though wholly morbid modesty, scouted the notion of love on her side. He was a likely person for a beauty on the threshold of life and success to fall in love with, but she meant to be kind to him, and he smiled a little inward, indulgent smile over her very evident compassion, her very evident intention of reforming him, reconciling him to life. And finally, he was incapable of any further resistance. He had gone too far with her. Let her do what she would with him, dear child, with the sharp tongue and the soft heart, and the touch of genius and brilliancy which made her future so interesting. He called his age and his disillusions to the rescue. He posed to himself as stooping to her in some sort of elder-brotherly fashion. And if every now and then some disturbing memory of that strange scene between them would come to make his present role less plausible, or some whim of hers made it difficult to play, why then, at bottom, there was always the consciousness that sixty hours, or thereabouts, would see him safely settled in the morning's train to London. Throughout, it is probable that that morning train occupied the saving background of his thoughts. The two days passed by, and the squire's dinner-party arrived. About seven on the Thursday evening, a party of four might have been seen hurrying across the park, Langham and Catherine in front, Ellesmere and Rose behind. Catherine had arranged it so, and Langham, who understood perfectly that his friendship with her young sister was not at all to Mrs. Ellesmere's taste, and who had by now taken as much of a dislike to her as his nature was capable of, was certainly doing nothing to make his walk with her otherwise than difficult. And every now and then some languid epigram would bring Catherine's eyes on him with a fiery gleam in their grey depths. Oh, fourteen more hours, and she would have shut the rectory gate on this most unwelcome of intruders! She had never felt so vindictively anxious to see the last of anyone in her life. There was in her a vehemence of antagonism to the man's manner, his pessimism, his infidelity, his very ways of speaking and looking, which astonished even herself. Robert's eager soul, meanwhile, for once irresponsive to Catherine's, was full of nothing but the squire. At last the moment was come, and that dumb spiritual friendship he had formed through these long months with the philosopher and the savant was to be tested by sight and speech of the man. He bade himself a hundred times pitch his expectations low, but curiosity and hope were keen in spite of everything. Ah, oh, those parish worries! Robert caught the smoke of Mile End in the distance curling above the twilight woods, and laid about him vigorously with his stick on the squire's shrubs as he thought of those poisonous hovels, those ruined lives. But after all, it might be mere ignorance and that wretch Henslow might have been merely trading on his master's morbid love of solitude. And then all men have their natural conceits. Robert Ellsworth would not have been the very human creature he was, if, half-consciously, he had not counted a good deal on his own powers of influence. Life had been to him so far one long social success of the best kind. Very likely, as he walked on to the great house over whose threshold lay the answer to the enigma of months, his mind gradually filled with some naive young dream of winning the squire, playing him with all sorts of honest arts, 
beguiling him back to life, to his kind. Those friendly messages of his through Mrs. Darcy had been very pleasant. "'I wonder whether my Oxford friends have been doing me a good turn with the squire,' he said to Rose, laughing. "'He knows the provost, of course. If they talk me over it, it's to be hoped my scholarship didn't come up. Precious little the provost used to think of my abilities for Greek prose.' Rose yawned a little behind her gloved hand. Robert had already talked a good deal about the squire, and he was certainly the only person in the group who was thinking of him. Even Catherine, absorbed in other anxieties, had forgotten to feel any thrill at their approaching introduction to the man who must of necessity mean so much to herself and Robert. "'Mr. and Mrs. Robert Oldsmere,' said the butler, throwing open the carved and gilded doors. Catherine, following her husband, her fine grave head and beautiful neck, held a little more erect than usual, was at first conscious of nothing but the dazzle of western light which flooded the room, striking the stands of Japanese lilies, and the white figure of a clown in the famous motto opposite the window. Then she found herself greeted by Mrs. Darcy, whose odd habit of holding her lace handkerchief in her right hand on festive occasions only left her two fingers for her guests. The mistress of the hall, as diminutive and elf-like as ever, in spite of the added dignity of her sweeping silk and the draperies of black lace with which her tiny head was adorned, kept tight hold of Catherine, and called a gentleman standing in a group just behind her. "'Roger, here are Mr. and Mrs. Robert Ellesmere. Mr. Ellesmere, the squire remembers you in petticoats, and I'm not sure that I don't, too.' Robert, smiling, looked beyond her to the advancing figure of the squire. But if Mr. Wendover heard his sister's remark, he took no notice of it. He held out his hand stiffly to Robert, bowed to Catherine and Rose, before extending to them the same formal greeting, and just recognised Langham as having met him at Oxford. Having done so, he turned back to the knot of people with whom he had been engaged on their entrance. His manner had been reserve itself. The hauteur of the grandee on his own ground was clearly marked in it and Robert could not help fancying that towards himself there had even been something more. And not one of those phrases which, under the circumstances, would have been so easy and so gracious as to Robert's childish connection with the place, or as to the squire's remembrance of his father, even though Mrs. Darcy had given him a special opening of the kind. The young rector instinctively drew himself together, like one who has received a blow, as he moved across to the other side of the fireplace to shake hands with the worthy family doctor, old Merrick, who was already well known to him. Catherine, in some discomfort, for she too had felt the reception at the squire's hands to be a chilling one, sat down to talk to Mrs. Darcy, disagreeably conscious the while that Rose and Langham, left to themselves, were practically tete-a-tete, and that, moreover, a large stand of flowers formed a partial screen between her and them. She could see, however, the gleam of Rose's upstretched neck, as Langham, who was leaning on the piano beside her, bent down to talk to her. And when she looked next, she caught a smiling motion of Langham's head and eyes towards the Romney portrait of Mr. Wendover's grandmother, and was certain when he stooped afterwards to say something to his companion that he was commenting on a certain surface likeness there was between her and the young auburn-haired beauty of the picture. Hateful, and they would be sent down to dinner together, to a certainty. The other guests were Lady Charlotte Winstay, a cousin of the squire, a tall, imperious, loud-voiced woman, famous in London society for her relationships, her audacity, 
and the salon which in one way or another she managed to collect round her. Her dark, thin, irritable-looking husband, two neighbouring clerics, the first by name Longstaff, a somewhat inferior specimen of the cloth whom Robert cordially disliked, and the other, Mr. Bickerton, a gentle evangelical, one of those men who helped to ease the harshness of a cross-grained world, and to reconcile the cleverer or more impatient folk in it to the worries of living. Lady Charlotte was already known by name to the Ellesmeres as the aunt of one of their chief friends of the neighbourhood, the wife of a neighbouring squire, whose property joined that of Muirwell Hall, one Lady Helen Varley, of whom more presently. Lady Charlotte was the sister of the Duke of Sebba, one of the greatest of dukes, and the sister also of Lady Helen's mother, Lady Wandless. Lady Wandless had died prematurely, and her two younger children, Helen and Hugh Flaxman, creatures both of them of unusually fine and fiery quality, had owed a good deal to their aunt. There were family alliances between the Sebbers and the Wendovers, and Lady Charlotte made a point of keeping up with the squire. She adored cynics and people who said piquant things, and it amused her to make her large, tyrannous hand felt by the squire's timid, crack-brained, ridiculous little sister. As to Dr. Merrick, he was tall and gaunt as Don Quixote. His grey hair made a ragged fringe round his straight-backed head. He wore an old-fashioned neckcloth. His long body had a perpetual stoop, as though of deference, and his spectacled look of mild attentiveness had nothing in common with that medical self-assurance with which we are all nowadays so familiar. Robert noticed presently that when he addressed Mrs. Darcy he said, Ma'am, making no bones at all about it and his manner generally was the manner of one to whom class distinctions were the profoundest reality, and no burden at all on a naturally humble temper. Dr. Baker, of Windale, accustomed to trouncing Mrs. Seaton, would have thought him a poor creature. When dinner was announced, Robert found himself assigned to Mrs. Darcy. The squire took Lady Charlotte. Catherine fell to Mr. Bickerton, rose to Mr. Winstay, and the rest found their way in as best they could. Catherine, seeing the distribution, was happy for a moment, till she found that if Rose was covered on her right, she was exposed to the full fire of the enemy on her left. In other words, that Langham was placed between her and Dr. Merrick. "'Are your spirits damped at all by this magnificence?' Langham said to his neighbour as they sat down. The table was entirely covered with Japanese lilies, save for the splendid silver candelabra from which the light flashed, first on to the faces of the guests, and then on to those of the family portraits, hung thickly round the room. A roof embossed with gilded Tudor roses on a ground of black oak hung above them. A rose-water dish in which the merry monarch had once dipped his hands, and which bore a record of the fact in the inscription on its sides, stood before them, and the servants were distributing to each guest silver soup-plates which had been the gift of Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, in some moment of generosity or calculation to the Wendover of her day. "'Oh, dear, no,' said Rose carelessly. "'I don't know how it is. I think I must have been born for a palace.' Langham looked at her, at the daring harmony of colour made by the reddish gold of her hair, the warm whiteness of her skin, and the brown-pink tints of her dress, at the crystals playing the part of diamonds on her beautiful neck, and remembered Robert's remarks to him. The same irony mingled with the same bitterness returned to him, and the elder brother's attitude became once more temporarily difficult. "'Who is your neighbour? he inquired of her presently. "'Lady Charlotte's husband,' she answered mischievously, under her breath, 
or need know much more about him, I imagine. And that man opposite? Robert's pet aversion, she said calmly, without a change of countenance, so that Mr. Longstaff opposite, who was studying her as he always studied pretty young women, stared at her through her remark in sublime ignorance of its bearing. And your sister's neighbour? I can't hit him off in a sentence. He's too good, said Rose, laughing. All I can say is that Mrs. Bickerton has too many children, and the children have too many ailments for her ever to dine out. That will do. I see the existence, said Langham with a shrug. But he has the look of an apostle, though a rather hunted one. Probably nobody here except Robert is fit to tie his shoes. The squire could hardly be called empresse, said Rose, after a second, with a curl of her red lips. Mr. Winstow was still safely engaged with Mrs. Darcy, and there was a buzz of talk largely sustained by Lady Charlotte. No, Langham admitted, the manners, I thought, were not quite equal to the house. What possible reason could he have for treating Robert with those airs? said Rose indignantly, ready enough in girl fashion to defend her belongings against the outer world. He ought to be only too glad to have the opportunity of knowing him and making friends with him. You are a sister worth having. And Langham smiled at her as she leant back in her chair, her white arms and wrists lying on her lap, and her slightly flushed face turned towards him. They had been on these pleasant terms of camaraderie all day, and the intimacy between them had been still making strides. Do you imagine I don't appreciate Robert because I make bad jokes about the choir and the clothing club? she asked him, with a little quick repentance passing like a shadow through her eyes. I always feel I play an odious part here. I can't like it. I can't, their life. I should hate it. And yet— She sighed remorsefully. And Langham, who five minutes before could have wished her to be always smiling, could now have almost asked to fix her as she was. The eyes veiled, the soft lips relaxed in this passing instant of gravity. Ah, I forgot. And she looked up again with light, bewitching appeal. There is still that question, my poor little question of Sunday night, when I was in that fine moral frame of mind, and you were near giving me, I believe, the only good advice you ever gave in your life. How shamefully you have treated it! One brilliant look, which Catherine for her torment caught from the other side of the table, and then in an instant the quick face changed and stiffened. Mr. Winstay was speaking to her, and Langham was left to the intermittent mercies of Dr. Merrick, who, though glad to talk, was also quite content, apparently, to judge from the radiant placidity of his look, to examine his wine, study his menu, and enjoy his entrees in silence, undisturbed by the uncertain pleasures of conversation. Robert, meanwhile, during the first few minutes, in which Mr. Winstay had been engaged in some family talk with Mrs. Darcy, had been allowing himself a little deliberate study of Mr. Wendover across what seemed the safe distance of a long table. The squire was talking shortly and abruptly, yet with occasional flashes of shrill, ungainly laughter, to Lady Charlotte, who seemed to have no sort of fear of him, and to find him good company. And every now and then Robert saw him turn to Catherine on the other side of him, and with an obvious change of manner address some formal and constrained remark to her. Mr. Wendover was a man of middle height and loose, bony frame, of which, as Robert had noticed in the drawing-room, all the lower half had a thin and shrunken look. But the shoulders, which had the scholar's stoop, and the head, were massive and squarely outlined. The head was specially remarkable for its great breadth and comparative flatness above the eyes, and for the way in which the head itself dwarfed the face, 
which, as contrasted with the large angularity of the skull, had a pinched and drawn look. The hair was reddish-grey, the eyes small but deep-set under fine brows, and the thin-lipped wrinkled mouth and long chin had a look of hard, sarcastic strength. Generally the countenance was that of an old man, the furrows were deep, the skin brown and shriveled. But the alertness and force of the man's whole expression showed that, if the body was beginning to fail, the mind was as fresh and masterful as ever. His hair, worn rather longer than usual, his loosely fitting dress and slouching carriage gave him an un-English look. In general he impressed Robert as a sort of curious combination of the foreign savant with the English grandee, for while his manner showed a considerable consciousness of birth and social importance, the gulf between him and the ordinary English country gentleman could hardly have been greater, whether in points of appearance, or, as Robert very well knew, in points of social conduct. And as Robert watched him, his thoughts flew back again to the library, to this man's past, to all that those eyes had seen and those hands had touched. He felt already a mysterious, almost a yearning, sense of acquaintance with the being who had just received him with such chilling, such unexpected indifference. The squire's manners, no doubt, were notorious, but even so his reception of the new rector of the parish, the son of a man intimately connected for years with the place and with his father, and to whom he had himself shown what was for him considerable civility by letter and message, was sufficiently startling. Robert, however, had no time to speculate on the causes of it, for Mrs. Darcy, released from Mr. Winstay, threw herself with glee on to her longed-for prey, the young and interesting-looking rector. First of all she cross-examined him as to his literary employments, and when by dint of much questioning she forced particulars from him, Robert's mouth twitched as he watched her scuttling away from the subject, seized evidently with internal terrors, lest she should have precipitated herself beyond hope of rescue into the jaws of the sixth century. Then, with a view to regaining the lead and opening another and more promising vein, she asked him his opinion of Lady Selden's last novel, Love in a Marsh, and when he confessed ignorance, she paused a moment, fork in hand, her small wrinkled face looking almost as bewildered as when three minutes before her rashness had well-nigh brought her face to face with Gregory of Tours as a topic of conversation. But she was not daunted long. With little airs and bridlings infinitely diverting, she exchanged inquiry for the most beguiling confidence. She could appreciate clever men, she said, for she, she too, was literary. Did Mr. Elsmere know? this in a hurried whisper, with sidelong glances to see that Mr. Winstay was safely occupied with Rose and the squire with Lady Charlotte, that she had once written a novel? Robert, who had been posted up in many things concerning the neighbourhood by Lady Helen Varley, could answer most truly that he had, whereupon Mrs. Darcy beamed all over. "'Ah, but you haven't read it,' she said regretfully. "'It was when I was maid of honour, you know. No maid of honour has ever written a novel before. It was quite an event.' Dear Prince Albert borrowed a copy of me one night to read in bed. I have it still, with the page turned down where he left off. She hesitated. It was only in the second chapter, she said at last, with a fine truthfulness. But you know he was busy, all the Queen's work to do, of course, besides his own. Poor man! Robert implored her to lend him the work, and Mrs. Darcy, with blushes which made her more weird than ever, consented. Then there was a pause filled by an acid altercation between Lady Charlotte and her husband, who had not found Rose as grateful for his attentions as, in his opinion, a pink-and-white nobody at a country dinner-party ought to be, 
and was glad of the diversion afforded him by some aggressive remark of his wife. He and she differed on three main points—politics, the decoration of their London house, Mr. Winstay being a lover of Louis Carr's and Lady Charlotte a preacher of Morris, and the composition of their dinner-parties. Lady Charlotte, in the pursuit of amusement and notoriety, was fond of flooding the domestic hearth with all the people possessed of any sort of a name, for any sort of a reason, in London. Mr. Winstay loathed such promiscuity, and the company in which his wife compelled him to drink his wine had seriously soured a small, irritable conservative with more family pride than either nerves or digestion. During the whole passage of arms, Mrs. Darcy watched Ellesmere, cat-and-mouse fashion, with a further confidence burning within her, and as soon as there was once more a general burst of talk, she pounced upon him afresh. "'Would you like to know that after thirty years she had just finished her second novel, unbeknown to her brother?' As she mentioned him, the little face darkened, took a strange bitterness. "'And it was just about to be entrusted to the post and a publisher?' Robert was all interest, of course, and inquired the subject. Mrs. Darcy expanded still more, could in fact have hugged him. But just as she was launching into the plot, a thought, apparently a scruple of conscience, struck her. "'Do you remember?' she began, looking at him a little darkly, askance, "'what I said about my hobbies the other day? "'Now, Mr. Ellesmere, will you tell me—don't mind me, don't be polite—have you ever heard people tell stories of me? "'Have you ever, for instance, heard them call me a—a a, a tuft hunter?' "'Never,' said Robert heartily. "'They might,' she said, sighing. "'I am a tuft hunter. I can't help it. And yet we are a good family, you know. I suppose it was that year at court and that horrid warum afterwards. Twenty years in a cathedral town, and a very little cathedral town, after Windsor and Buckingham Palace and dear Lord Melbourne. Every year I came up to town to stay with my father for a month in the season, and if it hadn't been for that I should have died. My husband knew I should. It was the world, the flesh, and the devil, of course, but it couldn't be helped. But now— and she looked plaintively at her companion, as though challenging him to a candid reply. "'You would be more interesting, wouldn't you, to tell the truth, if you had a handle to your name?' "'Immeasurably,' cried Robert, stifling his laughter with immense difficulty, as he saw she had no inclination to laugh. "'Well, yes, you know, but it isn't right,' and again she sighed. "'And so I've been writing this novel just for that. It is called—what do you think?—Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones is my hero.' "'It's so good for me, you know, to think about a Mr. Jones.' She looked beamingly at him. "'It must be indeed. Have you endowed him with every virtue?' "'Oh, yes, and in the end, you know,' and she bent forward eagerly, "'it all comes right. His father didn't die in Brazil without children after all, and the title—' "'What?' cried Robert. "'So he wasn't Mr. Jones?' Mrs. Darcy looked a little conscious. "'Well, no,' she said guiltily, "'not just at the end. But it really doesn't matter.' not to the story." Robert shook his head with a look of protest as admonitory as he could make it, which evoked in her an answering expression of anxiety. But just at that moment a loud wave of conversation and of laughter seemed to sweep down upon them from the other end of the table, and their little private eddy was effaced. The squire had been telling an anecdote, and his clerical neighbours had been laughing at it. "'Ah!' Oh, cried Mr. Longstaff, throwing himself back in his chair with a chuckle. "'That was an archbishop worth having.' "'It may be a curious story,' said Mr. Bickerton benevolently, the point of it, however, to tell the truth, not being altogether clear to him. It seemed to Robert that the squire's keen eye, as he sat looking down the table, 
with his large, nervous hands clasped before him, was specially fixed upon himself. "'May we hear the story?' he said, bending forward. Catherine, faintly smiling in her corner beside the host, was looking a little flushed and moved out of her ordinary quiet. "'It is a story of Archbishop Manners Sutton,' said Mr. Wendover, in his dry, nasal voice. "'You probably know it, Mr. Ellesmere. After Bishop Heber's consecration to the See of Calcutta, it fell to the Archbishop to make a valedictory speech in the course of the luncheon at Lambeth which followed the ceremony. "'I have very little advice to give you as to your future career,' he said to the young bishop, "'but all that experience has given me I hand on to you. Place before your eyes two precepts, and two only. One is, preach the gospel, and the other is, put down enthusiasm.' There was a sudden gleam of steely animation in the squire's look as he told his story, his eyes all the while fixed on Robert. Robert divined in a moment that the story had been retold for his especial benefit, and that in some unexplained way the relations between him and the squire were already biased. He smiled a little with faint politeness, and, falling back into his place, made no comment on the squire's anecdote. Lady Charlotte's eyeglass, having adjusted itself for a moment to the distant figure of the rector, with regard to whom she had been asking Dr. Merrick for particulars, quite unmindful of Catherine's neighbourhood, turned back again towards the squire. "'An unblushing old worldling, I should call you, Archbishop,' she said briskly, "'and a very good thing for him that he lived when he did. Our modern good people would have dusted his ape for him.' Lady Charlotte prided herself on these vigorous forms of speech, and the squire's neighbourhood generally called out an unusual crop of them. The squire was still sitting with his hands on the table, his great brows bent, surveying his guests. Oh, "'Of course all the sensible men are dead,' he said indifferently. "'But that is a pet saying of mine, the Church of England in a nutshell.' Robert flushed, and after a moment's hesitation bent forward. "'What did you suppose?' he asked quietly. "'Your Archbishop meant, Mr. Wendover, by enthusiasm?' non-conformity, I imagine. Oh, very possibly. And again Robert found the hawk-like glance concentrated on himself. But I like to give his remark a much wider extension. One may make it a maxim of general experience, and take it as fitting all the fools with a mission who have teased our generation, all your Kingsleys and Morrises and Ruskins, every one bent upon making any sort of aimless commotion which may both serve him as an investment for the next world, and an advertisement for this. "'Pon my word, squire,' said Lady Charlotte, "'I hope you don't expect Mr. Ellesmere to agree with you.' Mr. Wendover made her a little bow. "'I have very little sanguineness of any sort in my composition,' he said dryly. "'I should like to know,' said Robert, taking no notice of this by-play, "'I should like to know, Mr. Wendover, leaving the Archbishop out of count, "'what do you understand by this word enthusiasm in this maxim of yours?' "'An excellent manner,' thought Lady Charlotte, who, for all her noisiness, was an extremely shrewd woman. "'An excellent manner, and an unprovoked attack.' Catherine's trained eye, however, had detected signs in Robert's look and bearing which were lost on Lady Charlotte, and which made her look nervously on. As to the rest of the table, they had all fallen to watching the break between the new rector and their host with a good deal of curiosity. The squire paused a moment before replying, "'It is not easy to put it tersely,' he said at last. 
but I may define it perhaps as the mania for mending the roof of your right-hand neighbour with straw torn off the roof of your left-hand neighbour. The custom, in short, of robbing Peter to propitiate Paul. Precisely, said Mr. Winstay warmly. All the ridiculous radical nostrums of the last fifty years. You've hit them off exactly. Sometimes you rob more and propitiate less. Sometimes you rob less and propitiate more. But the principle is always the same. And mindful of all those intolerable evenings, when these same radical nostrums had been forced down his throat at his own table, he threw a pugnacious look at his wife, who smiled back serenely in reply. There is small redress indeed for these things, when out of the common household stock the wife possesses most of the money, and a vast proportion of the brains. "'And the cynic takes pleasure in observing,' interrupted the squire, "'that the man who effects the change of balance does it in the loftiest manner, and profits in the vulgarest way.' Other trades may fail. The agitator is always sure of his market. He spoke with a harsh, contemptuous insistence, which was gradually setting every nerve in Robert's body tingling. He bent forward again, his long, thin frame and boyish, bright-complexioned face making an effective contrast to the squire's bronzed and wrinkled squareness. "'Oh, if you and Mr. Winstay are prepared to draw an indictment against your generation and all its works,' "'I have no more to say,' he said, smiling still, though his voice had risen a little in spite of himself. "'I should be content to withdraw with my burke into the majority. I imagined your attack on enthusiasm had a narrower scope, but if it is to be made synonymous with social progress, I give up. The subject is too big. Only—' he hesitated. Mr. Winstay was studying him with somewhat insolent coolness. Lady Charlotte's eyeglass never wavered from his face— and he felt through every fibre the tender, timid admissions of his wife's eyes. "'However,' he went on after an instant, "'I imagine that we should find it difficult, anyhow, to discover common ground. I regard your Archbishop's maxim, Mr. Wendover,' and his tone quickened and grew louder, "'as first of all a contradiction in terms, and then the next place to me almost all enthusiasms are respectable.' "'You are one of those people, I see.' returned Mr. Wendover, after a pause, with the same nasal emphasis and the same hauteur, who imagine we owe civilization to the heart, that mankind has felt its way, literally. The school of the majority, of course, I admit it amply. I, on the other hand, am with benighted minority, who believe that the world, so far as it has lived to any purpose, has lived by the head. And he flung the noun at Robert scornfully. But I am quite aware that in a world of claptrap— the philosopher gets all the kicks, and the philanthropists, to give them their own label, all the halfpence. The impassive tone had gradually warmed to a heat which was unmistakable. Lady Charlotte looked on with increasing relish. To her, all society was a comedy play for her entertainment, and she detected something more dramatic than usual in the juxtaposition of these two men. The young rector might be worth looking after. The dinners in Martin Street were alarmingly in want of fresh blood. As for poor Mr. Bickerton, he had begun to talk hastily to Catherine, with the sense of something tumbling about his ears, while Mr. Longstaff, eyeglass in hand, surveyed the table with a distinct sense of pleasurable entertainment. He had not seen much of Ellesmere yet, but it was as clear as daylight that the man was a firebrand, and should be kept in order. Meanwhile there was a pause between the two main disputants. The storm-clouds were deepening outside, and rain had begun to patter on the windows. 
Mrs. Darcy was just calling attention to the weather when the squire unexpectedly returned to the charge. "'The one necessary thing in life,' he said, turning to Lady Charlotte, a slight irritating smile playing round his strong mouth, "'is not to be duped. Put too much faith in these fine things the altruists talk of, and you arrive one day at the condition of Louis XIV after the Battle of Ramillies. Dieu a donc oublié tout ce que j'ai fait pour lui. Read your renom. Remind yourself at every turn that it is quite possible, after all, the egotist may turn out to be the right of it, and you'll find, at any rate, that the world gets on excellently well without your blundering efforts to set it straight. And say so we get back to the Archbishop's maxim, adapted, no doubt, to English requirements. And he shrugged his great shoulders expressively. Parche, Mr. Ellesmere, of course, and the rest of our clerical friends. Again he looked down the table, and the strident voice sounded harsher than ever as it rose above the sudden noise of the storm outside. Robert's bright eyes were fixed on the squire, and before Mr. Wendover stopped, Catherine could see the words of reply trembling on his lips. "'I am well content,' he said, with a curious dry intensity of tone. "'I give you your renom. Only leave us poor dupes our illusions.' We will not quarrel with the division. With you, all the cynics of history. With us, all the scorners of the ground, from the world's beginning until now. The squire made a quick, impatient movement. Mr. Winstay looked significantly at his wife, who dropped her eyeglass with a little irrepressible smile. As for Robert, leaning forward with hastened breath, it seemed to him that his eyes and the squire's crossed like swords. In Robert's mind there had arisen a sudden passion of antagonism. Before his eyes there was a vision of a child in a stifling room, struggling with mortal disease, imposed upon her, as he hotly reminded himself, by this man's culpable neglect. The dinner-party, the splendour of the room, the conversation, excited a kind of disgust in him. If it were not for Catherine's pale face opposite, he could hardly have maintained his self-control. Mrs. Darcy, a little bewildered and feeling that things were not going particularly well, thought it best to interfere. "'Robert,' she said plainly, "'you must not be so philosophical. It's too hot. "'We used to talk like that,' she went on, bending over to Mr. Winstay, "'to the French priests who came to see us last winter in Paris. "'They never minded a bit. They used to laugh. "'Monsieur votre frère, madame, c'est un homme qui a trop lui,' they would say to me, when I gave them their coffee. Oh, "'They were such dears, those old priests. Roger said they had great hopes of me.' The chatter was welcome. The conversation broke up. The squire turned to Lady Charlotte and rose to Langham. "'Why didn't you support Robert?' she said to him, impulsively, with a dissatisfied face. "'He was alone, against the table.' "'What good should I have done him?' he asked with a shrug. "'And pray, my lady confessor, what enthusiasms do you suspect me of?' He looked at her intently. It seemed to her they were by the gate again, the touch of his lips on her hand. She turned from him hastily to stoop for her fan, which had slipped away. It was only Catherine who, for her annoyance, saw the scarlet flush leap into the fair face. An instant later Mrs. Darcy had given the signal. End of Book Two, Chapter Seventeen